Welcome to the Grad School Femtoring Podcast, the place for first-gen students of color to prepare for grad school. This is Dr. Yvette Martinez Fu, and I will be serving as your femtor, providing you with tips and tricks and everything else you need to know to get into and successfully navigate grad school. For over 10 years, I've been helping first-gen students of color get into top grad programs in their field, and I'm really excited to support you on your academic journey too. Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Grad School Femtoring Podcast. This is your host, Doctora Yvette. And today I have a returning guest who's here to talk about uh, the process of managing work transitions as a newly disabled first-gen immigrant. Our guest is Diana Vandivia, and she most identifies as an immigrant woman of color whose immigration status is undocumented. Her experiences have led to organizing within immigrant rights and higher education. She recently retired from student affairs. We'll talk more about that with her most recent role as the director of undocumented student services at UC Santa Barbara. During this transition, she has been resting, taking time to assess what's next for her, and breaking intergenerational cycles of the immigrant hardworking work ethic. She also has a platform called First Gen And, where she shares and uplifts the multidimensional experiences of first-generation immigrants and those of immigrant descendants. Welcome back to the show, Diana. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me again. I'm super excited to talk. <laughs> I know. I'm like low-key excited and also kind of wondering like, Ooh, what are we going to talk about today? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, so um, for folks who don't know, Diana is a returning guest. She was previously on the show for episode 102, and that was released in November 2021. And we are recording in April 2023. This episode will be released sometime in May or early June 2023. So that gives you a little bit of the timeline. For a lot of us, a lot has happened between 2021 and now. So um, I would love for you to get us started by sharing a little bit more about who you are uh, for folks who didn't get to catch that episode and, and maybe an update. It could be a, a brief, brief um, information on whatever you're comfortable sharing um, and kind of maybe some of the changes that have happened for you since we last spoke. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so many updates that I think uh, relates to a lot of new things that I've learned in a different way. Uh, but a little bit, a little bit more about me. Um, so, you know, the bio expands or shares a little bit of, you know, who I am. Uh, but just to put more context to that, um, I was born in Mexico, I lived in um, border town cities, uh, both in Mexico. And then when we moved to San Diego, uh, we lived in San Diego County, um, grew up undocumented, did both undergrad and graduate programs undocumented. And so after my uh, master's program, I was burned out. Uh, I just did everything and anything that you can think of in undergrad and graduate uh, school um, that I took a break. Um, a theme of my life is that like, I just take breaks and, you know, we'll talk a little more about that, but I took a break after my master's program um, against sort of the 
the current of you know everyone graduating and getting jobs and at that time in 2013 I had just gotten DACA like right when it came out and so I was you know for the first time in my life of my adult life able to legally work um so against all that um I decided to take a break and did um, part-time organizing um local DACA clinics and then a year into that um, part-time temporary job uh, positions to support undocumented students um, were popping up across the UCs. Um, so I was the first coordinator at UC Merced. Two years after that, went to UCSB, and that's how we met at UCSB. Yeah. Um, and so I did that for a really long time um, before um, April 21, um, where I decided to be like, peace, I'm retiring from student affairs. Um, so that's a little bit, a little, a little bit more about me. Um, some updates. Um, so one, um, so after I took the break, um, like it, during that summer, and you know, I don't, I remember if I mentioned this during our last podcast, but um, during that break, um, like that summer, I started to develop um, like pain in my hands. Um, and, you know, like, I used to have it too in grad school, but it was manageable and like I was able to get rid of it. But like my body was already sort of showing signs of like things happening in my body, right? Like, yeah. and so, so that lasted quite a few months, like maybe six, seven months. And I went to the doctor to try to figure out what to do. I did like medicine and all that. But like, you know, I had that happen and I'm like, okay, like I need to take it easy. This is why I took a break, you know, like all that. And then the universe was like, here you go, another health issue. And so in January of last year, um, I started to have really weird symptoms that like I've never, ever in my life experienced. Not only that, but like it was the most painful like pain I've ever had like it just there's no other way for me to describe it other than like the most painful um experience physically and I think emotionally in some extent um but some of the symptoms were like I started to feel like I was getting sick mm. and I didn't have COVID I like tested for COVID started like I was feeling sick and then it started also with like my feet feeling cold um, and there was like nothing that I could sort of do to make them feel warm. Um, and so those were the symptoms and I'm like, what's going on? And then over the period of like one or two weeks, um, the pain started traveling, um, through my body. Um, and that's when it got really bad. Like it felt like at its worst, it felt like I was being like, um, like crush, <laughs> Oh. um yeah it's because like there's nothing like nerve pain I think yeah. <laughs> after experiencing and after knowing what it is like there's nothing like nerve pain because it just it was it was incredibly painful and scary because I went to the ER twice and they're like basically we don't know what it is but you're technically fine in ER you know, perspective, because they're just like, oh, is this an emergency or not? And so long story short, around May, after going to that doctor and this doctor and that test, I did MRI twice, I think, like, you know, just navigating that healthcare system. 
um, I was diagnosed with small fiber neuropathy. And by May, my symptoms were also a lot better um, in the larger scheme of things. Mm -hmm. um, but since then, since January, um, I've been dealing with like 24 seven um, sensation, like burning sensation um, slash it just feels like my feet feel cold all the time. Like mm -hmm. it's a, I can go to sleep and I can rest and, you know, it's not necessarily as painful as like it was at the beginning. Um, but it is a discomfort that I experience like 24 seven. And so that whole thing, like literally has changed my life, how I like, you know, how I, um, I'm connected to my body, how, like my relationship with my body, just like it has been, um, a transformative experience and, you know, in so many ways. Um, so starting that is very strong, but you know, it's a, it's, it's a big update. Like my yeah. whole life has changed because of it. Um, yeah, that's one update. I have more updates, but yeah. I wonder if you have any questions about it. I'm glad that you mentioned it because that is part of the title, uh, being newly disabled. You know, for some of us who are born with disabilities, others of us develop our disabilities later on in life. And it's a huge, for those of us where we were not born uh, disabled, it's a huge shift in how you interact with the world. And in how you see yourself or identify and it, there's a huge grieving process too I know I didn't include this in my notes or in my questions but just you mentioning it it's huge it's it's a huge shift um and I can relate to you in that respect and I've been chronically ill for over 10 years and I, I'm still grieving yeah mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I mean, basically, so that was one of the reasons in my other update is that I started therapy again. Good. <laughs> um, so around in May, um, and it was like specifically for this because they were just, you know, like the way that I look at therapy is like, it's just a very unique space for me to have my emotions be supportive and held and processed. And so I'm like, okay, this is overwhelming. There's a lot of things that are happening and coming up. And so I want to be able to have the space to process it. So I started therapy in May um, of last year. And, you know, through that process, I'm grieving. And I'm like being able to name that this is a grief process. And how I relate to my body is different before of how I related, you know, before all this. Um so yeah, so shout out to my therapist. I, I love her. She's like my fourth therapist. <laughs> it really, you know, I, she, I, the other reason why I chose her and chose to go back to therapy is because um, in the past, I haven't really done somatic work. Um, and so that was another reason why I chose her to be able to, you know, I'm having so many issues with my body. So I want to be able to then still relate to my body in a way that feels like I'm honoring my whole mm. self. Um, and so, yeah, so some of the um, experience I was looking for that. And then my third update was around, um, so I think through this process, I'm still trying to figure out how I build community. Um, and so part of my healing process has been able to listen to other um, folks who have disabilities, who are um, disabled, um, and that has been really um, helpful for me. Um, 
And the other thing that I also am embracing more, so around like 2001, I started to embrace more publicly what it meant for me to be queer. Um, so, you know, and that's a whole other episode and a whole other thing because I'm married to my husband and there's a whole thing of like, you know, people, he's also queer, but you know, people feeling like, are you still queer if you're married to, you know, we're not going to get into that. The point is that I'm queer. Um, and I think part of it for me, I'm always like find comfort in a quote by Bell Hooks that I'm going to share. Um, so queer as not about who you're having sex with, that can be a dimension of it, but queer as in being about the self that is at odds with everything around around it and it has to embed and create and find a, a place to speak and thrive and to live like that has been for me queerness is like nuance for me queerness is being able to hold and and or and both and multiple things and like to have a disability not only the one that I'm speaking of but like other health issues can be so overwhelming well overwhelming but like Queerness allows me to feel all of that and queerness allows me to be in all of that um, in a way that I think the quote explains it mm. um, that I've embraced and, you know, like just anything that has to do with queerness. I'm like, it just reminds me of my own humanity. Like yeah. that's, that's, that's how I, you know, and so to be able to publicly speak the fact that I'm queer, I'm like, yeah, like it just, you know it's it's been part of my healing journey that's beautiful and that's a beautiful quote and you just you're reminding me that um I mean queerness is a positionality you know an, an identity but it's also a lens and, and a framework mm -hmm. through which you navigate the world and um and you're reminding me because I have several friends who themselves also identify as queer and are in uh, relationships with you know someone of the opposite sex or married mm -hmm. and it's you know it's about them it's about you know like one of my friends recently publicly came out as asexual and so it's just like about embracing and opening up and being willing to like be your full self yeah um, yeah. yeah but I think that not there's not enough conversations about the the nuances and the complexities of queerness. And there's so much, the LGBTQIA plus, I'm sure there's many more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I think for me too, like, um, I mean, I've been queer my whole life. Like, you know, the, the more that I sort of started to accept myself as a queer person, um, the more that I'm like, yeah, this like makes sense in terms of like, you know, like I've always just questioned things like, you know, like all the time since I was a kid. <laughs> and so, you know, there's something about questioning the world and questioning like, mm, you know, like this doesn't make sense. Like I don't I want to live in a world that like, you know, does this and does that. And like there's some queerness attached to it. And that has also just always been part of my life where I'm like. Mm, you know like okay random note like when I was five or six I was like my dad dressed up as Santa <laughs> and like imagine like five-year-old six-year-old Diana being like hey you're wearing Santa clothes or no you're wearing Nike shoes my dad wears Nike shoes why <laughs> are you 
you know like I just always been this curious person yeah. like and there's like queerness to it there's like yeah. curiosity is attached to queerness for me um and so it just made it has made a lot more sense like how I grew up and who I am and now sort of you know, being curious about my healing process, being curious about how my relationship to my body is going to evolve, um, that I'm embracing as part of this healing process. When you talk about uh, the shift um, with becoming newly disabled, but also like fully embracing and being out uh, in terms of your queerness, I'm curious how that if that in any way uh, shifts your understanding of your experience in student affairs and in higher ed, um, yeah, I mean, you are still technically navigating work transitions. So I'm, I'm wondering like what the intersections are between those three things, between, you know, becoming disabled, being queer, and also leaving um, student affairs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this isn't necessarily related to the queerness aspect of it, but more around the disability. Like, I think there's, and I think some folks that might be in similar positions go through this of like, right after I left UCSB my first time around and I was having the issues with my hands and then other health issues came up. It's just, I wonder, I'm like, how much was this con a contribution of the stress at work, you mm. know? And like the other thought that I was holding was like, oh, how much did I do to like, you know, contribute to then my health issues or like, could I have done better? Like, it's just the ping pong of what ifs of like, what if, you know, this, you know, this workplace, you know, just questioning that, questioning that myself, you know? And then I think now where I'm at, it's most clear to me, it's more clear to me that like work has contributed to health issues, period. Like how much? I don't know. <laughs> but I know that, you know, the stress um, of it has contributed to my health issues. Um, I also know most days um, that I have done the best for myself um, to be able to navigate this. Um, and so, you know, the question of like, oh, should I have left early or not? Like, doesn't come up as often as it did before. Um, yeah, so I think that's where I'm at a little bit of, you know, that. And then um, recently, um, so, you know, I came back to this position in an interim base um, because of um, the, the previous position or the previous person um, ended up uh, transitioning out. And so I was like, hey, I'm still available. I don't have a job, you know, happy to help um, remotely. Um, and so there was an opportunity or, you know, they, they were hiring again for a new director. Um, and long story short, I decided to apply for the position, um, you know, like reasons like, oh my God, I can go back and, you know, do the work and that they would be able to hire more people and, you know, just many reasons of um, going back to the job. And then I went through the interview process um, and I don't think I mentioned this before in the podcast, but there was certain incidents that happened early on, on when I started uh, just working in student affairs that led me to not feel safe on college campuses. Mm -hmm. um, and I would have nightmares from time to time about it. Um, 
And I think there's also the culture and reality of college campuses not being safe for people, right? Like that's, we live in the US. I mean, even schools, right? Like they're not yeah. safe um, for people in general. Um, and so between the culture, the, the culture and reality that we have of college campuses, and then also me having, you know, incidents, like we got some hate emails um, because I was working with undocumented students and, you know, like, Part of you is like, okay, well, you know, they're just sending stuff. And then part of you feels like, wait, I'm not safe, right? Like this, these people like are, you know, like there's hate and violence behind, you know, these emails. And so those were some of the incidents um, that led me to then have these nightmares. And so then I, um, I did therapy. <laughs> And I did um, EMDR to be able to address some of those um, nightmares um, and, you know, happy to talk about how EMDR has been part of my process in terms of healing. And so I did yes. it recently. Yeah, I was going to say at some point, or, uh, <laughs> if you can say what EMDR is for folks who are new to it, but I'll, sorry, I'll let you finish. Yeah. Yeah, so I did EMDR to be able to address some of those memories and thoughts and narratives around, you know, me not feeling safe on, on college campuses. Um, and so my nightmares, my anxiety, my stress definitely decrease. But then um, talk about listening to your body. Um, I uh, did the interview and right after that, like a few days after that, I just had back-to-back -back nightmares um, about being on college campuses and not feeling safe. Um, and, you know, as much as I in the waking world could say that I feel safe, that I'm fine, that I'm great, you know, that I'm excited to do this job again, um, my body's telling me otherwise. My body's telling me, you know, it's still feeling some kind of way about this type of work um, that I decided to withdraw from that, from the um, job, uh, job process or the the job search, uh, yeah, the job search, um, because, you know, I was just, yeah, my, my body, my mind was telling me, I also was having, like, uh, like, my, my tummy, I felt like a knot, like, literally, my gut <laughs> just felt stress um, during that time of, like, should I, you know, should I continue the process, should I not, um, and so the minute that I did, the minute that my nightmare stopped, and you know, this was like a few weeks ago, like two weeks ago. Um, and yeah, the nightmares have stopped again. Um, and I feel, I feel fine. I feel like I've let go of some of that. Um, and yeah, I think my body was trying to tell me like, you're in your healing journey. Yeah. And going back to this, uh, probably won't provide the healing that you need and particularly you know besides my body sort of protecting my protecting me <laughs> protecting yeah. my body through the signals um I think now that I also think about it um being then now having this disability and having all these signals I'm like wait yeah I need to be able to focus on the disability aspect of my life um yeah. So, yeah. You know, um, I want to ask you about the lessons you learned in stepping away, not once, but twice. But I also want to mention something that this reminds me of. Um, I have a lot of conversation with folks who are disabled, who are chronically ill, who are neurodivergent. 
and they'll come to me asking me like well what kind of job can I even get like because oh my we God, live yeah. in such a unhealthy <laughs> toxic world and a lot of these systems kind of further replicate that and it, you know they're not always healthiest they don't always um support or um in, I don't know like they don't there, it's not in their best interest to make sure that we're okay. Um, and that's a tough, that's a tough thing to answer because I, I wish I could say like, oh, I can teach you all these strategies and you'll be fine. And I can teach people strategies, but I can't guarantee that they're going to be fine because I myself was not fine and I left higher ed too. And so, yeah, I guess with just, I wanted to mention that as, as, because I'm thinking about people who are listening to this episode who are having those questions and concerns and who want to know from your experience, like, what are the lessons that you learn? And also, like, what, how do you think you will take these lessons into whatever you do next? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons is like, you know, how do I carry the grief that this process has brought? Because the first time that I left, I was sad. Like, I was I was sad. I was angry. Um, and it was just a lot of grief. Like, oh my God, I'm leaving the job that I, you know, love. I, I, it's not even the job itself. It's like the fact that like, you know, I had this position to be able to focus on always supporting undocumented people. Like I'm always going to be rooting for immigrants, Mm -hmm. period. (laughs) You know? And so like the fact that that was my job and is my job for a few more weeks, (laughs) (laughs) to to, you know focus so much of like I get to create those experience I get to like you know hold those spaces for people and like you know what I it's it's just joy you know and like not even just um you know being able to hold like space for grief or you know just be able to hold spaces, create spaces for students to feel more human and yes. be validated of their experiences, right? So like, I left that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not only once, twice. And it's sad. It's sad that, you know, I don't then get to do this in the capa- in this capacity. Um, and so, you know, it, there's, there's grief and there's grief the second time around. Like, and I already cry about it once. I'm probably going to cry one more time um way less than I did the first time (laughs) you know but I think like I I've definitely have learned to honor you know just emotions in general but I think there's a sense of grief um not only with having to grieve my process of having this new disability but having to grieve this transition um and the community because I also enjoy working there and you know I just yeah I don't get to work with you know really nice people (laughs) You know, um, so there's that. I think the other thing that I learned at one point, um, I was going to so many doctor's appointments. It was like, at one point it was just like, and this doctor and this doctor and this doctor and this doctor. So many specialists. (laughs) Yeah, that I remember reading um, a book about uh, disabled folks and you know, I, I just remember being feeling so validated because they were like it feels like a full-time job slash sometimes it's a full-time job and so I quickly learned that that like sometimes having some of these disabilities health issues 
feels like a full-time job. And so to then figure out, well, what is the job <laughs> that I can maybe have with some of these disabilities and health issues when already sometimes having some of these disabilities and health issues feels like a full-time job. <laughs> so I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, I know, I don't know the full answer. I think I know some of the, some of the answer, which is, I think it's going to take me a while to go back to, to go back to a service oriented position and role mm. because, um, it's that as much as I love to do that, right. To hold a space and for people, I think that was, that was one of the added, um, I, yeah, a, a huge component of my stress, um, being able to provide that one-on-one -on -one with students. So I know that for quite a few next years, I think my next role won't be service-oriented um, or it might not be ever again, <laughs> um, just because, you know, and, you know, last, last podcast, we talked about the hardworking um, immigrant work ethic. Um, and I think so much of that is service oriented <laughs> and I just, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't go back to the a hundred percent, um, service oriented roles. I think. It's great that you've arrived at that, you know, awareness because not everybody does. Um, and they just kind of keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Um, and, you know, with talking about the, the immigrant hard, hardworking work ethic. So did you say breaking these cycles and then you went back to the interim position. So did you set more boundaries or did you feel like, OK, I'm going to come back, but under my terms? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, it was definitely like more my terms. Yeah. One, like, you know, we live in a capital society and so I'm like, yeah, I need a job. <laughs> And so, so yes, I think I came back more on my terms. Um, I'm also working remotely. And so there's an actual physical, you know, barrier, uh, yeah. barrier um, that doesn't mean that it's good to, you know, fully because then I'm not able to connect with students in the way that I would want to and they would want to. Um, but to some extent, then there's a barrier in terms of setting my own boundaries. Um, yes, I think coming back, um, I came back more in my terms. Um, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, w with you talking about setting the boundaries and setting um, barriers, uh, the, the actual like physical barrier of working um, remotely. Uh, that's, I, mean, I think that's even a big deal that they were willing to offer that because a lot of higher ed spaces are uh, at least from my awareness, um, are resistant to that. And that was yeah. always one of my struggles was like, I had to work so hard to get accommodations to work remotely two hours in the morning before I came in in person. But even then it was really, really hard uh, to get any kind of remote work. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and the thing too is that like, you know, now that I'm more aware of, my own health issues and my own disabilities like it's one of those things that like sadly you don't gain the awareness until you have it which yeah. is not good because then I'm like wait how are people not talking about this but you know okay. what <laughs> yes yes this is gonna get me to the next question 
Okay, so a lot of people are not having this conversation, but there are folks, able-bodied folks, many of them who listen to this podcast, and some of them I know because they tell me are faculty and admin. And so I'm curious, like if you could say something to folks who are still working in higher ed, who have some sort of say in making a change or being better or whatever, like being more supportive to these distinct populations that need extra support, whether they're undocumented, whether they're immigrants, whether they're disabled, you name it. So like, what can they do to better support these students? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I have two things <laughs> and one of them is not the most polite one. Um, but you know, sometimes we don't need polite. Sometimes we need the truth, even if it's a little bit hard um, <laughs> to, you know, to say. Uh, but I think one um, is just being able to like question why aren't we talking about this more? Like, you know, like I think any way that folks can show visibility for support, both for undocumented immigrants and um, disabled students, the more the merrier. Because if you don't see the possibility of being able to have support, then like you're then unlikely to reach out for that support. Um, you know, and so that means like, depending, you know, for faculty, like, yeah, like it's not just social science uh, majors that should be incorporating issues of disability. Like, I'm sure you can find ways of incorporating that into your, into your lessons, into mm -hmm. your lectures and homework. Um, and for staff, again, if you're doing programming, having it then be intersectional and be including, including some of the, um, the folks who are, um, yeah, disabled communities. Um, yeah, so anything with visibility and, and things like that. Um, the second one, um, so I think, um, so this isn't, this isn't to scare people, but, you know, I think I have other friends who are um, either dealing with some of these health issues um, mm -hmm. or I then see them work so hard that I'm like, I was there, <laughs> you know, and like I. I, I don't want people to develop, you know, health issues because of, of yeah. because of work. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 35. I just turned 35 a few months ago. And I think like, to me, it is very, very clear that many of us um, will be disabled because of the society that we live in. And so, you know, just because you might not be dealing with some of these health issues doesn't mean that then you won't be dealing yeah. with some of these health issues in the and long run you definitely know someone everybody knows someone who's disabled whether you know it or not it's I think the last stat I read was that one in four people are disabled and it's the largest uh marginalized community um out there so I too I'm like well why don't we talk about these things but I am also aware that I myself was not having these conversations when I was able-bodied so yeah I mean that's the thing right like you don't then know until like I think many of us have that yeah. experience of like and, you know yeah and I think it's also like how because I was aware because my my brother has a disability and so I was aware of it but I think it's different I think it's different when you then are personally you know, like the, your relationship to your body is changing, how you identify yourself, you know, what kind of experiences are you having? Like, it just, the level of awareness, I think, increased a lot more because yeah. then now I'm having it. And I think there's also like, 
to some level culturally, I think some people who have disabilities might not necessarily see them as disabilities. Um, yeah. Oh, that's a so, whole other conversation. Yes, because a lot of folks uh, struggle with internalized ableism, or they think that my thing is not enough. There's this like oppression Olympics, disability Olympics of like, if this is not bad enough, it doesn't impact me enough that I get to call myself disabled, like disabled is a bad word. I've been there. I've been there. So I, I, I'm just saying like, it's taken me a while to come to terms with, with identifying as disabled and realizing that, yes, this impacts me enough for, for me to consider myself disabled because, yeah, I'm, I am not the same as I was before. But yeah. I yeah. also wanted to mention, you make a really good point, um, going back to how you said you don't want to scare anyone, but there's going to be a lot more people who are going to become disabled um, between now and, you know, as they age. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been trying to have someone come on the podcast uh, or try to find a guest who can come on the podcast to talk about, um, you know, the, the lifting of COVID restrictions on campuses and the lifting of like uh, vaccine requirements and mask mandates and how that negatively and substantially impacts the disabled community. Mm -hmm. And I myself am someone that got way worse, way sicker after getting COVID. So I'm dealing with some long COVID stuff, some neurological stuff. And I know like, I don't want to get COVID for a second time. And so I mask everywhere I go, but I, I know that a lot of people are no longer masking. They're gathering indoors. They're going to conferences. They're going to these big mass scale events. And like you, I'm thinking a lot more people are going to get, are going to get some sort of like long-term thing or some sort of disability uh but it's I guess I don't know I'm I'm just speaking to the choir right now <laughs> so yeah. I'm talking to you <laughs> yeah yeah and I mean you know I think there's like I think one of the things that I talked to my therapist about this is that like there's a to some extent a universal experience around how we relate to our bodies when they're mm -hmm. doing things differently than what we grew up with mm -hmm. and so like that's one of the things that I'm learning that is like wait like as I age there's gonna be things that my body like I'm dealing with my body changes but yeah. like this is a universal thing of people aging you see <laughs> I'm getting yeah. it a lot sooner than I wanted it <laughs> um you know but um but I, you know there's a universal experience um and so there's that and then I think too I mean you know like the other thing that you mentioned in terms of like not necessarily you know seeing yourself as a disabled person I think I'm in that realm too from time to time um I think for me it's like having to figure out like well you know the is the small fiber neuropathy like permanent or not to what extent does it impact me am mm -hmm. I still able-bodied to some extent you know like it's just I think it's also valid, I think, for some people that are dealing with health issues and disabilities of not being then in the binary of like, am I fully a disabled person yeah. or am I not? Just being and then like, there's dynamic disabilities too, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like one moment I can walk, the next moment I might need a wheelchair, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think if people, this is why I go back to like being queer, because in like, if people, if we lived in these non-binary ways, mm. right, of like, you're not sick, you're not healthy, like no one is ever 100% healthy, right? And so if we yeah. live in this like nuanced way, which we do, and yeah. except that we live in a nuanced way, yeah. then I think a lot of us more would lean towards, wait, I'm not 100% healthy all the time. And yeah. this world doesn't make it, you know, available for me to yeah. be in my best health. And a lot of it is relational and has to do with your environment. Because I've heard folks ask, well, would an autistic person still be considered autistic if they lived in an environment where like that, like they had, you know, their needs accommodated, mm -hmm. you know, so they, that there wasn't a question about it. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, you know, what you're what you're saying reminds me of that. A lot of it is uh, your surroundings, your environment, systemic issues that we can't easily resolve. Um, mm -hmm. And so sadly, um, a lot of times it becomes like individualized when it's not, you know, like, oh, mm -hmm. it's you didn't do enough to take care of your health. You didn't do enough to work on the documentation you need for x y and z it's your yeah. fault when that's not necessarily the case for most yeah. of us yeah yeah which is why I think so one of the other reasons why I'm like constantly rejecting how I think about the the hardworking um immigrant worth worth ethic is because I question then who benefits from that uh, narrative and I certainly don't <laughs> right like capitalism does yeah. and so you know like yeah like it benefits to be like yeah immigrants are hardworking, right like they we can always hire immigrants because they're always going to work and they have a, a great work ethic um but with that comes in like oh yeah overwork underpay <laughs> mm -hmm. and so who benefits from that capitalism and so you know i then question yeah like i I, yeah, I don't want people, I don't want to know myself as a person who works so hard. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, you know, having to constantly reject um, that and knowing that like sometimes people, you know, don't have a choice. Like yeah. I, I've been thinking about, you know, what to share in the podcast. And I think when, when I was in college, it felt like I needed to do everything and anything just to be considered for positions and yeah. sort of to build that stability that I went to college for, you know, and being able to have financial means and all that. And so it's, you know, most of your listeners are college students and graduate students. And so it's hard for me to think about myself in that, in those experiences and say like, well, I'm going to stop working less <laughs> mm -hmm. because it feels so hard to think about that, right? Because there's articles you need to write, there's a dissertation needs to get done, like, there's just more and more and more. There's always more and more to do mm -hmm. in order to be able to get some financial means. And mm -hmm. a lot of, I mean, you know, many of us work is tied to our survival, not even yes. thriving, right? Like it's tied to our survival. Yes. And so it's hard to hold that truth of like, well, yeah, I want to question our worth ethic around immigrants. And then also have to be like, wait, but like some of us have to work hard and some of us have to work a lot because mm -hmm. it is our survival yeah and so it's hard to hold those truths but we can hold those truths Oof. I mean 
that's that's hard because I'm thinking about how many of us listening right now might be thinking like, yes, I'm going to college or I'm going to grad school. I'm trying to get all of these achievements or accolades or you name them, credentials, whatever, like so that so that way they can have more opportunities and be able to like one day make an income to do more than just survive um, only to perhaps arrive and not be 100% happy or make themselves sick in the process but Mm -hmm. then at the same time it's like okay so I'm learning something different I'm learning there's a different way of being and doing and I'm still in the thick of it and I'm still witnessing my parents who are working probably Mm -hmm. like backbreaking work or just Mm -hmm. working tirelessly who don't ever stop and those two things are really really hard to like come to terms with where you're Mm -hmm. understanding that you want a different way of life for yourself but also having to accept that it's not going to be the same for um, those Mm -hmm. that came before you Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess I I I want to get we're getting close to like wrapping up I want to ask you Mm -hmm. about the advice that you have for folks who are listening to this, I know I'm, I'm like, I feel like this, this conversation is a little bit of a serious one, <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, oh, I don't want them to, I, I, and this is my tendency, and I know it's a coping mechanism of like silver lining, silver linings, that's how I survive is, is, you know, sometimes I have really hard days, and I'm like, but let me think about like, what is on the other side of things, so on the other side of things for, for listeners, who maybe they themselves are are immigrant students or undocumented students or disabled or maybe newly disabled or struggling with their mental health or you name it like what advice would you have for them um, in terms of navigating higher ed and and their career you know just to ensure their own overall um wellness and honoring themselves and their 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 full selves mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think there's two things I think one um I think this is again part of like uh I think I, I mean I I think as you get older you just get better at listening to yourself like you like tune out some of the noises <laughs> the older you get um yeah and yeah so I think you know honoring yourself just like I already you kind of already said the question but also the answer (laughs) you know you know like and necessarily though like what is that what is that what can that look like you know when you say honor yourself you know I know it's different for all of us yeah well and and I think it's that I think it's like that like however you honor yourself like that's the way to do it that like the the noises of capitalism the noises of having to do more and feeling like you have to do more um they get less distracting I think the more you practice to honor yourself like I you know like people talk about meditation as a practice because it is literally a thing that you have to practice and so I think honoring yourself is a practice Mm. like you have to do it to keep doing it (laughs) Like, you know, like maybe today you're honor yourself by like, you know, drinking water, like making sure that you're getting your water. And as small as that sounds, it's literally something that you do to honor yourself and the needs that you have for like, you know, the day. And so the way that I look at how 
think how to think about taking care of yourself. I think about it as a practice. Um, and if it's a practice, then you just get better at it sometimes, right? Like, and then the other way that I think about it is I think about it as a muscle. So like people work out, right? Sometimes I don't, <laughs> but like they, <laughs> but it's like a muscle that you practice. And so when you're working now, you know, you practice, you do it, you build the muscle, but like you also just rest, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a, it's a constant thing that you're working on, but also resting, um so there's that and then I think again I think this has to do at least for me as I got an older I along the lines of like listening to yourself I think it gets easier because you just have evidence aka years mm. to be like wait it has worked out somehow it just has like I you know in the moments before where I was like oh my god I don't know what to do I don't know if it's gonna work out like the questioning was just a lot louder now it's less just because I have years of evidence to show that things are gonna figure themselves out like I I'm, I'm Brazilian there's preservation like I've done I've done things <laughs> you know mm -hmm. and I just like being able to trust yourself and have the evidence to say you know what like you know dissertation okay yes I like I have the evidence that I figure it out like I got myself into grad school right <laughs> like I I will figure this out um it might not feel like I'm going to at the moment but I the I think it's a thing about maybe at least for me it's a thing about getting older that you just have more evidence as you navigate things that you will figure things out that you can trust yourself that you can trust other people like who knew that you know I was gonna come back to UCSB <laughs> you know, for this amount of time and to be able to have the financial means at the moment, right? Like I quit a job without having something lined up because I trusted myself. I trusted community. I trusted a little bit of coincidence <laughs> that things are going to work out for themselves. Um, and I am going to go back to being unemployed. And I, I have a little bit of anxiety about job searching again, but I'm like, wait, I have evidence. I have evidence that I will figure it out because I have this period, you know? Yeah. Oh my goodness. That those, I, I got two really, really key things. I think they might even be the quotes that I'm going to share <laughs> on social yeah. media. Like one thing is honoring yourself as a practice. That is such a good reminder. And it's a practice and just like any practice, like you get better over time. So that's a really, really great thing to remember. And then the other thing is to look for the evidence, look for the evidence that things will work out because they have worked out. And that's also really, really great. It's a great mindset uh, shift too, because sometimes I am a, I am a, what's the word? Like I'm recovering from being overly pessimistic. And so for me, I would always find evidence for the worst thing. You know, mm. I would always find evidence for like the, the world is going to end. And so now on the other side of things, I'm trying to remind myself, actually, there have been some really great things that I have evidence for the opposite as well. And if I focus more on the opposite, eventually, like I will get there. So yeah, um, yeah thank you for those two reminders. Yeah. And it's hard to argue with evidence, right? <laughs> the evidence is there. Like, you know, it's just there. You can't like, oh, it's not there. It's Are there, you still so. here? Are you still alive? Yes. Okay. We're good. <laughs> yeah. So. 
Okay. Well, um, I wanted to ask you one last thing, if there's anything else, any other closing words that you wanted to share? Um, not words, recommendations. Um, so part of, yeah, so part of my healing journey has been, um, focused on listening to a lot of black feminists, um, and some health, uh, trauma related books and podcasts. Um, so the one that comes to mind is the myth of normal by Gamor Mate. Mm -hmm. uh, his work around how trauma stress relates to our body and minds and health is like, I just, I listen to anything that he says because his research is just really good um, and has then allowed me to be validated around how stress then is contributing to things. And, you know, it's not my fault that it's larger than me. Um, so that one, and then the second one, I haven't read her book, um, but it's called Rest is Resistance, a Manifesto. I have. Yeah. It is so good. And one of my BFS recommended it to me. Shout out to Elana. Um, it's so good. Everybody has to read it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's by the founder of the NAP uh, ministry. Um, and her name is Trishi Hershey. And I haven't read the book, but I follow her Instagram um slash, you know, the work that she's doing. And I would even just recommend like going on a podcast search um and putting like uh her name. Uh, she's done a couple interviews like that's one of the the interviews that I listened to she did an interview with um we can do her things podcast and I went to church that day I was like oh my god this is so good so anything by both of them um or any any anything by queer trans non-binary black folks around rest and healing just anything get your hands on that <laughs> I wrote them all down so that I can add them to the show notes, including yes. um, the podcast episode that uh, Trisha Hersey was on uh, for, yeah, talking about her book. Um, thank you. So, okay. I, I said that was the last question, but for the folks, this is the real last question. For the folks who really want to stay in touch and connect, what's the best way that they can reach you? Yeah, um, Instagram. I'm still trying to figure out my consulting shenanigans, but it is uh, first gen and at the moment. Um, and I'll be doing some, I, I just did in January, I did a workshop series for a university. So it might look like that, you know, doing some workshop um, stuff. Ooh, can you say a little um, bit more about this? Yeah, <laughs> about your yeah, consulting? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm still trying to figure out, but, you know, I, I want to be able to now have more space for people to have conversations about their own unlearning around citizenship. Um, yeah, so some of those workshops, some of those lectures, and by me, please, uh, happy to come to a university and talk. Um, and then I think the other thing too is around content and um, creating spaces for us to have conversations about the experiences of being first gen and focusing on other identities and experiences of what I name it uh, first gen and because there's so much more to our identities yes. and experiences. Well, thank you so much for everything that you shared today. The, the whole time I was like, I feel like you're just preaching to the choir. <laughs> I, I enjoy our conversations. Yes. I can't help it. I'm so glad that you came back. I'm so glad that you're, you know, generous enough to share your experience, your knowledge, your insights with us. And I know that a lot of people are going to learn a lot from this episode. So thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, thank you so much for having me again.
Thanks so much for joining me in the Grad School Fem Touring Podcast. If you liked what you heard, here are three ways you can support the show. The first is to make sure you're subscribed and leave a review of the podcast. If you leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, you become eligible for a free half-hour coaching session with me. Yes, that's right, one free session. Once you leave a review, you can email me a screenshot and I'll send you a link to sign up. The second way to show your love is to get yourself a copy of my free 15-page grad school fam touring kit, which includes resources on research, organization, grad school, and career prep. Go to gradschoolfemtouring.com slash kit to get it today. The third and last way to support my show is to follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and occasionally TikTok with the handle at Grad School Fan Touring. Thanks again and until next time.